This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. This program contains themes of an adult nature. Word for Word is an in-depth look into the lives of real people, which means this episode may contain explicit accounts of real-life events, including alcohol and drug use. The language used at times may cause some offence, but has been left uncensored due to the accuracy of the story. No offence is intended, and we hope you enjoy the program. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, to over 70 community stations around the nation, this is Word for Word, coming to you from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Welcome, family and friends, fans and fiends, to today's edition of Word for Word. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I am Benjamin Norris, and it's simply a delight to continue to work on this show for the Joy Network, which has already featured some of the community's strongest voices. In the tradition of this ongoing program, I continue to look at powerful stories and insights into the life and lifestyle of some incredible people. Each week, we will chat with those in and around our community who have inspired us, entertained us, but mostly they've made an impact on the queer community of Australia. Today's guest is one of them. This man was born in China, and when his mother met an Aussie sailor, she moved her whole family to Perth, Western Australia. However, the transition from Chinese culture was anything but smooth, and what would take place would become the foundation to the award-winning feature film titled The Home Song Stories. With a strong grasp on storytelling and a proven intellect, he later combined his skills and followed his passion of cinema and television. Winning awards for his writing and directing, this internationally recognised filmmaker made a name for himself with films like Walking on Water with Vince Colosimo, Cut Snake with Sullivan Stapleton and The Turning, which was based on short stories by author Tim Winton. However, it was the forming of Matchbox Pictures that has seen him create popular television programs like The Slap, Barracuda, Nowhere Boys, Glitch and even The Family Law. And with his new deal with NBC Universal and his production company Tap, we are set to see more brilliant stories being made by this extremely talented man. I'd like to welcome you and I'd like to welcome Tony Ayres to Word for Word. I was born in Macau. We lived in the Housing Commission flats in the back of Chinese restaurants. Award-winning writer, director and producer Tony Ayres brought us, among other things, The Slap and much more recently, Glitch. I was probably aware at an early age that I had to protect myself. If everyone has one story which defines them, then this is mine. To write a character or for an actor to play a character, you have to understand them. And as soon as you understand someone, you hate them less. So I used to tuck myself into a doona and I used to just tell myself a story. We were interested in emotional stories and how art can be a way for people to express their various emotional needs. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for yeah. coming in here. It's yeah. a pleasure. Yeah. Am I a weirdo for saying this, but I can't get Sullivan Stapleton's bum out of my mind. <laughs> You're not the only one. For people out there that haven't seen that, you have to go and see Cut Snake. Yeah. And for some reason, there was two scenes in particular at the start where he sort of walked down the road in those yeah. yellow shorts. Yeah. And then that scene where one of the protagonists is holding the gun and he sort of shifts his bum. Yeah. Am I a weirdo for talking to you about this? It's joy. We're talking to <laughs> It'd be our weird audience. not to be talking. <laughs> <laughs> and like the film itself, I mean, the violence was very full on. The emotion from all of the characters from this triangle was so full on. Is that yeah. one of the films that people stop you and say, good God? Weirdly enough, of the three films that I've made, Cut Snake is probably the one that's been least seen by people. 
probably the least talked about. But, I mean, I love it, mainly because of the intensity of the performance. Sullivan, yeah. Stapleton, Alex Russell and Jester Gow, the three central characters in it. I had such a great time directing them. They were, they're such intelligent actors. They're completely committed to, you know, this bizarre f- up love triangle. <laughs> <laughs> and I directed this a reading of the script 2003 and, and then it went away for a decade and I didn't think about it because it had other directors on it and went in a, another direction. And then I sort of randomly got a call from the producer asking me whether I was interested in looking at it again. And I said, yeah, because I loved it. And so then Blake and I worked on it together and sort of honed it into the the film that it is, which is kind of like a, a tight three-hander love triangle with fairly mm. intense kind of homoerotic elements to it. There's a real sense with you, with your storytelling, that you're sort of exploring the human condition and there's a real sense that you're watching real people. Is there a way that you can summarise how you can dig that out of people? I guess it's always to do with the story and the script. And mm. uh, like Walking on Water was a, about a particular situation. And, yeah. and it, was, it was based on something true. I mean, I, I think one of the recurring things in my career is an attraction to true stories, the truth. Mm. Walking on Water was... The writer, Roger Monk, had an experience, you know, it's not that experience, but it span off from that experience. Sure. And uh, Home Song Stories is the story about my mother and my sister and me. And Cut Snake actually came from a true story, which is the film is a riff on the the bombing of the Whiskey A Go-Go in Brisbane. Really? Yeah. And the writer basically span the whole story from one line in his research because he was wanting to write write a film about that bombing there's one line in the research that turned into cut snake which was it was rumored that the two men were lovers in prison wow we don't know if it's true but but then you know we tried to make something true from it well you definitely got something out of that look we're going to get more into your storytelling and the work that you've been able to create but we're going to go back and sort of look at the origins of you and sort okay. of your upbringing <laughs> now you born in china i was born in macau which is on mainland china but it's it, back then it was a portuguese territory have you ever gone back there yeah yeah i went back a few times especially when i was making my second film home song stories because mm. it was autobiographical and we actually considered filming in Macau at one stage. And so I went back and looked at locations. And I also went back for inspiration for the script. What can you remember before moving here to Australia? Because you moved to Perth, I think. Yeah, I kind of came to Australia. My mother, who was like a nightclub singer, hostess at a, a nightclub in Hong Kong and lived in Macau, met an Australian sailor, William George Ayres, and... And she brought my sister and I to Australia. So he was my stepfather. That's why, that's why I'm heirs. <laughs> and what did you know of Australia? I guess the early days, they were coloured by two things. Coloured by being a Chinese person in a very white place. Mm. I mean, I don't even think I quite computed what that meant because the other thing was coloured by was my mother's mental health issues. And she was an incredibly troubled woman. And, you know, she left my Australian stepfather soon after we got to Australia and she had a string of lovers and we, you know, um, and we lived in the Housing Commission flats and uh, in the back of Chinese restaurants. There's, you know, like in the film, at one stage, the family are living in the storeroom of a Chinese restaurant. And that actually was true. Like my sister, my mum and I lived 
in the storeroom amongst the takeaway containers and the Coke bottles and um, and the napkins and plastic forks. And we had a bunk bed, a uh, double bunk that my sister and I slept in, which we just went, that went from place to place as we as we went from place to place. So it was, I think that was probably, weirdly enough, my experiences of, uh, you know, having to confront white Australia were, were probably less profound for me because I was really dealing with having to confront my mum. And then what was that relationship like then with her? I mean, obviously she was going through severe mental health issues yeah. and yeah. she was combating that. But I guess with all children, we have a yearning to interact with our parents. What kind of a relationship were you able to have? It was... It was a strange relationship because I, I was probably aware at an early age that I had to protect myself. So I kind of kept myself at a distance. And also, back in those days, my mum, with the wisdom of hindsight, I know that my mother also did an incredible job of raising my sister and I in absolute poverty. She had no money. She, she couldn't even read. She worked in Chinese restaurants. And back then, it was a pretty tough environment. Like, mm. she worked for very little pay. She worked incredibly long hours, and yet, you know, my sister and I never felt poor. We never, we never went hungry. We always had clothes. You know, like she did an incredible job as a provider and a protector. But because she was so emotionally unstable and erratic, I think I, I didn't appreciate what she was doing, and so I put a bit of a force field around myself. And also, back in those days, it was really important to integrate, to be part of Australia. So mm. my mum didn't want me to speak Chinese. So I kind of stopped speaking Mandarin, which was my first language, when I was three or four. And as a consequence, my, my mother and I didn't end up speaking together very much. So there, there was a gulf between us. But I guess my sister and I were very close and we were a very intense, small family unit. It was pretty much the three of us until she, she died. We do share this in common. My father also suffered from mental illness and he took his yeah. own life in 2006, it was. Wow. So, like, I completely understand what it's like to lose a parent. But how old were you when that happened with your mum? I was 11. What happens to a boy at the age of 11 when something like that happens to your mother? I think, you know, the, those memories are just burned into your, you know, retinas for, and they're, they're kind of permanent memories. I, I think that... You know, often those kinds of things, they just walk with you through the rest of your life. Mm. You know, they're, they're like scars that just actually don't, they grow over, they cover over. Yeah. I don't think I ever think about it consciously. I mean, for me, my way of processing all that stuff was, you know, I wrote short stories. I sort of made work. I made creative work from it. And, you know, and, and I made dramatic pieces about my mother and my sister and I that eventually turned into the home song stories, the movie. And and so that was probably the way I dealt with it. And that's also probably why, you know, where I, how I think of it as well now. Well, I guess in some ways it could have been quite cathartic, I guess, for you to go back over that and explore it in your work. Yeah. Is that a way of being able to combat some of those lost feelings? It also helped me learn to appreciate my mother. Because, mm. you know, the woman who played my mother was Joan Chen, who was like a goddess. <laughs> and we had lots of talks about that character. And she was ferociously protective of that woman. You know, she was ferociously protective of how much she cared about her children and how how she was battling her demons. And, and weirdly enough, um, uh, you know, as a director, there's part of you, which, you know, part of me is always so full of admiration for the actors that I work with. And so, you know, like I was so in love with Joan 
that I kind of fell in love with my mother. (laughs) But I think in some ways, I think even with my father, I was very angry for a very long time yeah, because yeah. I was I felt like that relationship was stolen from him being very selfish. Yeah. So then it was quite some time before the I had an aha moment where I thought to myself, oh, I didn't really appreciate what he was going through. I, I mean, I suppose that's one of the... I mean, art is, and therapy are, are different things, but mm-hmm. certainly in the process of making and understanding uh, dramatic work, you, you do have to be compassionate. Like, I, you know, I'm big on the idea that the dramatic arts are a compassionate form mm. because to write a character or for an actor to play a character, you have to understand them. And as soon as you understand someone, you, you hate them less. That, I think that's the first act of compassion. Even characters that you think are detestable, you know, when you, when you try to dramatise them, when you try to make them real human beings, and then you get, you know, some other real human being to then pretend to be that person, that process is about trying to understand them, trying to, mot- you know, motivation is a, a huge thing when, you, when you're directing an actor. You're talking about, you know, why are they doing that? You know, what, what's this all about? What does this mean to them? You know, who are they? And all of those things are also... Ironically, the, the tools of therapy, they're the ways in which we're, we can help understand each other. I think for you in particular as well, though, it's your expression of your work is relatability. That's ultimately, I think, what you're doing. It's like you're holding up a mirror for people to see themselves. I guess what, one of the things that, you know, I've always been proudest of in my work is that, you know, like my, the, my focus has tended to be on on characters that are not represented very, very much in mainstream Australia. So, you know, like Walking on Water is about gay characters, Home Song stories about Chinese characters. A lot of the, the stories, like Family Law, which I was involved in as an executive producer, is about chi- Chinese characters. Ali's Wedding, which I was uh, an executive producer on, is about a Muslim, you know, it's a Muslim rom-com. Barracuda was about a gay Greek swimmer. So, so the worlds that I tend to explore or inhabit uh, people on the margins of society. Mm. And what I hope to do in my work is by presenting them to as broad an audience as possible, help, you know, us try to break down some of the preconceptions about, you know, who those people are. Yeah, absolutely. I got asked by ABC to do You Can't Ask That. Oh, um, wow. Fantastic. And I originally was like, I don't know why they want me to do this show. But I then watched one of the seasons and it was about real people in this world being yeah. marginalised for certain things like how they looked or yeah. things that had happened to them. Yeah. And that really resonated with me. But it also made me realise that I think for a lot of queer people, we have been marginalised for whatever reason at certain times in our lives or we've felt less than. Yeah. So I think yeah. that a lot of those stories that you tell, regardless as to whether they're queer or not, you're telling stories in a space of very strong, relatable themes to gay people. So I hope so. Anyway, you know that's the best you can do. You, you hope that people can connect to the stories you tell, and, and the best chance you've got to make that connection is if you tell the stories well, if you tell them truthfully. Mm. And that's why truth is a big thing, you, and you don't preach to people. You know that it's kind of important not not to do that. We sound like Oprah now because we're like, tell your truth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you can tell your truth to people, people will love yeah, it. You yeah. know, and it does seem to resonate. Talking a little bit more about your upbringing, yeah. what was your relationship like then with your sister? And sort of how did you fit into the dynamic of that relationship? Well, my sister and I are incredibly close. I mean, we're incredibly far away. She lives in Perth and has lived in Perth 
her entire adult life, and I left Perth when I was 17. So we've been geographically a long way away from each other, but we speak every week and we're emotionally very close. She's, uh, she's just a wonderful human being, and, and she kind of protected me. So then with your stepfather, yep. you had quite a good relationship with him, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he, he was an Australian sailor. And when my mum died when I was 11, he actually retired from the Navy and came back and looked after me for three years. And so we, we, you know, we lived together. It was a bit of a strange relationship because he was a very laconic Caucasian Australian man. And, you know, I didn't quite know what to think of him. You know, he, he'd been always been a shadowy figure in my childhood. But he was incredibly kind to me. And unfortunately, he passed away when I was 14, completely unexpectedly of a heart attack. Wow. I think when you're a child, things just happen and you, and you just accept, well, that's just what life is. One, one thing I do remember, uh, which or has always stood me in good stead from, the, the, from early childhood, was that, and I don't know where I got that idea, but it just... It, something just popped in my head and I just thought, I'm never going to be a victim. I'm never going to feel sorry for myself. Still and a very think, powerful thing to learn. I mean, that's... I think it's, in, it's important. It's, I think it's an important thing because otherwise you, you get all blamey and, you know, you, you sort of feel, feel sorry for yourself. And, it, and I think that you disempower yourself. Yeah. And I always felt like, oh, rightly or wrongly, you know, if I was feeling badly, there was something I could do to feel a bit better. Or if I, you know, if, if I was in a difficult situation, there was something I could do to make life better. And, I, and I've always had that attitude. I think it's a powerful thing to have learned. Was there anyone in particular that taught you not to be a victim, that taught you about looking forward? I can't actually remember where it came from. Uh, uh, I came from TV. I don't know. <laughs> I know it, it just it just popped into my head one day. I remember I was having it was a particularly bad day, and I just I just remember having this thought, and it just it just stuck around. It kind of stuck around for the rest of my life. And then you also the relationship that you had then was it with your carer? Was it your teacher that you had that you fostered had a, a relationship yeah, with? Yeah, I had a uh, you know after my stepfather died, I. Then, I, I mean, it is it is a real drama story. It's a real story. He died two nights before he was going to remarry, and so I'm. And he was going to remarry my girlfriend's mother at the time. So it was a very kind of weird situation. Let me break this down. So you're in a relationship with, with a, a girl, girl back then. Yeah, back okay, then, yeah, great. My high school sweetheart. And Spoiler alert: You're a gay man now. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But, but you're in a relationship, and your mother's ex-husband is about to marry your girlfriend's mother. Yes, yes. It was kind of Brady Bunchy, sort of slightly, you know, we couldn't work out whether we were suddenly incestuous if they got married. And, <laughs> and you know, you know, because I was gay, it didn't really worry me. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was a bit of a relief, took a certain pressure off. Mm. Um, but uh, she, yeah, he was going to get remarried. And two nights before the wedding, he had a heart attack and dropped dead. And so I moved in with my girlfriend and her mum for a year and that was a disaster and and then I moved in with my history teacher in my final year at high school and he was um and he was married with two kids and it was, you know he was he was a pretty um he he basically saved my life what's your relationship with him like these days 
<laughs> that's another story. <laughs> okay, you that's pretty. That's okay. a full-on story. <laughs> that's another full-on story. So th- quite interesting, though. You though lived with with him, being yeah. a history teacher who was your carer yeah. until what age? Um, until I finished high school and then went to university at seventeen, and then I left Perth and went to Canberra, went to university, and um, and my first year at university, I met my boyfriend Michael, and uh, next year we have our fortieth anniversary. So you've been together for 40 years. Been, next year, yeah. We're 39. <laughs> Too yeah. late to back out now. <laughs> I um, love the idea of people being together for such a long time because you get yeah. to create history. I've been with my partner now for nine years. And, yeah, yeah. you know, it's nice when you can think back. I mean, there's been things that have been sad that have happened, but things that, yeah. are, that are good. Yeah. And it sort of... Uh, yeah, it's, not, it's never a straight line. No, yeah. but it sort of connects you together in such a powerful way. Yeah, no, we're, we're very bonded and he's... he's um. You know, he's a film producer, so he's in the same industry, and he's about to get a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Screen Producers Association wow. um, conference in, uh, the week after next. So that's that's very exciting. So entwined into all of this, yeah. what age did you work out your sexuality? Uh, pretty young, when I was about 14, I think. Uh, you know, like I, I had girlfriends in high school, but um, I probably knew what's what, you know, like um, when I was about 14. Yeah, right. And then were you able to work out sort of, were you able to be comfortable enough to tell that story to your sister? Like what age did you come out? The first person I told was my history teacher because I was living with him. Yeah. And uh, so I would have been 16 when I told him. And And how did that go down? Well, he tried to play play it cool. (laughs) and, uh, And he sort of, you know, he sort of said, he took me to an illegal casino to celebrate and we gambled. Yeah. So it was kind of like it was like a straight guy's version of oh you know I want to show you that I'm cool about this I'm going to do so- show you something else that's kind of adult and a bit forbidden like sexuality like, yeah. like illegal casino wow. I had to go through these back rooms and we sort of you know gave me this money to gamble and it was almost like that you know I, I guess that was you know his his way of saying you're okay. Mm. So, like, you grew up in more the 70s. Yeah. yeah. And during that time, what was Australia's relationship with gay people? Oh, it was, it was pretty bleak. You know, it was, it was illegal. And, I mean, weirdly enough, it wasn't ever, you know, because, you know, both my parents were dead. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have, like, a lot of Asian people have um, huge issues with family coming out you know for, for gay Asian, lesbian asian people it's um it the the biggest issue is conservative family i didn't have to deal with that because you know like both my parents were dead and uh so i and i had this kind of liberal sort of you know not liberal you know progressive yeah. liberal history teacher who was cool and uh you know so so it weirdly enough it wasn't it wasn't that much of an issue and then i told my sister about it and she freaked out for about an hour, and then she got over it, and it was fine. <laughs> so, uh, like, coming out was never a big deal for me, but at the time, it was for a lot of people around me. You know, like, I could see, I intuitively knew that it was not a good thing to be gay, but I guess the other thing was that I'd had so many dramas in my life by the time I was, you know, 16, 17. Mm. Honestly, coming out was very, very small. <laughs> It was no big deal, yeah. And I guess in some ways, 
which offered you some protection. I think, you know, you meeting Michael, the two of you could live yeah. in a bubble yeah. of normality. Well, we, we were students in Canberra together, you know. So, I mean, we didn't even have any gay friends. Like, really, you know, all of our friends were the, were the feminists on campus. Yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I probably didn't explore the gay world until much later, probably my late 20s, when we, we ended up at one stage, I ended up going to, in my late 20s, I lived in Sydney, I went to film school in Sydney and started going to Mardi Gras and parties and, you know, and, and that was when I kind of saw and explored the gay world more. And yeah, understood sort of, sort of gay culture here in Australia during that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, and I think that, honestly for me, I, I, I didn't have a huge issue being gay, like, you know, and I didn't have profound issues of dealing with being Chinese in the white world. But I think being gay and Chinese was probably the, the hardest thing that I had to deal with in my 20s. Because I think that, you know, I wrote a piece recently in a book about actually my most profound experiences of racism was in the gay world. And that was such an eye-opener for me. Like, I was kind of shocked because, cause, you know, like, you know, I'd had you know, bogan guys shouting out things in in cars as I walked down the street when I was a kid in Perth. But it really, you know, it did no damage. I didn't want their approval. I didn't want them to like me. I had no interest in them. Whereas in the gay world, you know, like I, when I first came out and, you know, and started meeting other gay men, I kind of wanted them to like me. I wanted their approval, you know, and and I found that I was being judged in a way, based on how I looked, in a way in which I hadn't recognised before. It was, it, was quite a, it was quite a shock. Isn't it strange to think, though, that it's still just as prevalent today? I, I didn't know whether it's still like that. I, I had hoped that, it would, that it's changed or it's changing. I think that it is changing and I think that we need to open that conversation up and say no to what is out there. Like if you look yeah. at these dating websites, I haven't been on a dating website in yeah. nine years, so you can't really ask me. Yeah. But I do have that conversation with my multicultural friends yeah. and it's disturbing to me that they have no Asians or no femmes. Or- I, I, I read about that on Facebook. I, I think that, you know, the advent of the app world has absolutely led to a much more brutal form of behaviour amongst, you know. And the thing to remember about the gay male world is, you know, we're gay, but we're men as well. And men, are, you know, are traditionally pretty f***ed up about emotional things. And, you know, and don't, you know, I, I think that collision can also not necessarily lead to the kindest behaviour sometimes. No, I think that men sometimes don't express themselves correctly. Or kindly, Yeah. Moving away from that, though, and talking yeah. more about you and your next steps. So, what makes a good filmmaker? Like, what sets you apart from other people? I think it was all this stuff had happened to me when I was a kid. Mm. And I just started writing it down, you know, in a way to process it. Yeah. And then I started showing people and, and you know, and I started writing scripts about it. And, and people really responded to the way I wrote and the way I told the story and possibly because, you know, I told it in a way which was not about feeling sorry about for yourself or being a victim. It was just kind of pretty, this happened and, you know, wow, that's amazing that this happened, but isn't it sad that this happened? And people were affected by the way I told the story. Well, I think there's an intensity and there's a truth in the way that you tell stories, which in some ways can be incredible, it can be brutal, but it can also be beautiful, which I found in some, like even in Walk... Walking on Water, I was watching yeah. that and it was, I felt at some points that I was like, this film is 
incredibly disturbing. Yeah. But then I also kept looking at some of the cinematography or the writing or the way the actors said things. Yeah. And I was like, there's something kind of beautiful about this as well. Yeah, and also, you know, we were always looking, you know, Roger and I, when we were making the film, we were always looking for the really human moments in an intense situation. So, we kind of always called it, I mean, it's, I don't think it's exactly right, but we called it a comedy about grief. Wow. It was about, you know, the weird, funny things that happen as well when people are going through an intense experience. And I had an understanding of that because of my childhood. Roger had an understanding of that because of his experience as a gay man through that time and losing really close friends. And so we both understood what we were looking for in making Mm. that film. And I think what people don't know is that you had a really strong relationship with Tim Conagrave, who wrote Holding Holding the Man. Man. How did you know Tim? Like, How did you have that relationship? I met Tim through a mutual friend called Kevin Jackson who used to teach drama at NIDA, and he was Kevin was his drama teacher. And I was got some money to do a short film called A Night Out With The Boys based on a, a short story I wrote. And, and, and so I was just doing the scene, and Kevin suggested I cast him. So I cast him into this, and we, you know, we filmed it. And he was just a beautiful actor, and, and we became friends. But it was interesting. I met Tim after John had died. So I never knew John. And Tim had moved to Sydney and was working at the AIDS Council as a youth worker. And he was trying to find his life again without the love of his life. And so I didn't know about John and he never talked about John. It was kind of interesting. So we became really close friends and then he started writing the the book and he started talking to me about the book and then he started getting sick. And in the last few years of his life, I we particularly bonded, you know, because I was a a writer, director, sort of semi-unemployed. I had time on my hands. You know, I used to, we used to go to the theatre together or to art galleries or just for walks, or, you know. And he was talking about the book. And I remember he finally finished the manuscript two nights before he died. And he printed it out. And I've, I've still got it. I've got the original copy of the book on blue paper <laughs> in a binder and he gave it to me and I read it overnight and I was just so moved because it was a whole world that I didn't really know about but it was the it was my friend so I recognized his voice and he was very funny very sarcastic very dry um, and a lot of that came across oh yeah yeah the character in the book is Tim and and so I read it overnight and I was just absolutely a sobbing mess and I went to see him the next day And I wanted to talk to him about how much I loved it and how much I appreciated him showing me the book. And he had uh, toxoplasmosis and basically he had developed dementia overnight. Oh, my God. But I told him I wanted to um, make a film of the book and he said fabulous. But as it turns out, I couldn't do it. You know, like I'd read that. I remember reading the story about you spending... I think up to four years trying to yep. write this yep. book. But when something's so personal like that, yep. you had difficulty culling it down. It was a lesson in what not to do. So I just didn't, one, I didn't know what I was doing. And two, because he was my friend, I felt beholden to tell the truth. What Edmund. a powerful thing to learn. And also such a relatable thing for so many people because that book 
in Australia, in the queer community, like it's so recognisable. Yeah, kind of like a cross between a fairy tale and an opera. It's a fairy tale because it's, you know, it's a love story between these two boys and it's an opera because it ends tragically. You know what's quite interesting about that particular story is how many different versions of a reaction I did manage to have from that. Like the book in particular, the play but also the film. Were you happy with these I was you know, a bawling mess every time I saw it. Okay. <laughs> I, th- I, thought, I th- think that Tommy Murphy just did an extraordinary job. And I, I mean, I guess because he's another generation, he's a younger generation. He was closer to the generation mm. of the kids in the, in the book. And I think he really captured something I- in that experience. And he distilled it down to what you need to do when you're making a drama, which is to, you know, the bare essence or the bare bones of the story. But he he did it so beautifully and artfully, um, you know, like I, I'm full of admiration for it. You then went on to tell the home song stories, which is yeah. what we were discussing. How much of what was left in the film is actually what happened? Pretty much. I actually cut out more dramatic stuff that happened because it was just too unbelievable so so everything that kind of happened in the film actually happened in in real life it was pretty full-on it was a pretty full-on time particularly for my sister and the story of the film is the story of how the mother takes on a lover and the lover falls in love with her daughter you know and that actually happened well your sister married him didn't she no 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 my my sister ended up marrying my history teacher Okay, the pennies just dropped. <laughs> that's a story, okay. You know, that's her story. <laughs> that's her story to tell, but it's, yeah. sometimes it's starting to feel like, Tony, with your story, it's like the Star Wars universe. There's just a <laughs> lot of characters, well, and they're all intertwined. You you know, you have a story to tell, and you so, so then you become a storyteller because you've told the story. Interestingly enough, from all of that, did you go and watch the movie when it premiered with your sister? Were yeah, you with her yeah. when she? Oh watched yeah, her? yeah. She was very involved in the whole thing because, it, as much as it was my story, I was you know the kid in the film is an observer, and he observes his sister's story. You know that's that's the film. Yeah, and he observes his mother's story, and so it was very important that she know exactly what the film was about, and I had to get her permission to tell her story. What's hilarious is that, you know, siblings have different memories of the past. Mm. And, you know, we have very different memories of our mother, of what happened, you know, in the past, except for certain key things that happened in the film. But after the film, she started talking about things that happened in the film as though they were really things that happened in the past. And they were just little things that I'd actually dramatised to make more convenient or I'd cut this or, or, you know, change times or change locations. And she started talking about it as though it actually happened. And what did you say? Did you go, hang on a sec? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 I made that up. (laughs) (laughs) My siblings sometimes say that to me. They're like, Ben, did that really happen? But I think Mm. there's your truth. And then there's your sibling's truth and there's the what's actually happened. Because Mm. I think in lots of times, what I believe to be true is so true to me. But because my brother has a different telling of that story, he probably jars against it and goes, come on. But also, I mean, there are really interesting theories about memory now anyway. That, you know, like memory is not this thing, concrete thing that you recall. But Mm. actually, it is, you know, a story that you reinvent every time you tell it. Yeah, absolutely. So... The past is a series of contestation. It's fluid, you know. Absolutely. But, I mean, I think all of this as well, like, you've been so lucky to be able to express yourself in this way. I mean, you could have been quite 
terrified of all of this and shut down, but instead you're sort of navigating your way through your own story and your own truth. Yeah, I kind of used art to help me not be a basket case. I mean, I sort of am a basket case anyway, (laughs) but... I didn't want to say anything. (laughs) But art sort of helped me just navigate the real things that happened in my life. And then probably from there, I just used the skills I acquired through being able to tell these very personal stories and started to apply them to other people's stories and, you know, other kinds of subjects. Did you go and do the research? I mean, you were saying earlier that you went back to where you were born. To Macau, yeah. So, did you learn things that you didn't know by doing the research? Yeah, and then I sort of, you know, like I made a documentary called Sadness about William Yang, and that was his story. And so, so I kind of developed a process by which I work, and it's pretty much the same process that I work to this day, which is to always try to ground things in the truth, in what really happened. I, you know, I made documentaries for a decade as well. I tried to make things... About real people. Yeah, that felt real. And then mm. even when I started moving into high-concept areas like Glitch or Noah Boys, you know, that sort of you know fantasy stuff that I do these days and which, you know, I, lo- I love watching. But see, to me, I think that shows who you were as a child. When I watched Nowhere Boys, I watched all four seasons over two days. <laughs> So well no like three seasons because <laughs> yeah. the fourth wow. one's not out yet. Yeah. But I thought when watching Nowhere Boys and with watching Glitch I imagined that there was a large part of you growing up where you existed in a fantasy world. Gee, you're like my analyst. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. I used to collect comic books from from the age of 8. I've got about 5000 in my roof to this day of uh, comic books and I used to Basically, to get to sleep at night, I, I think because I held so much trauma in my body, you know, that was my way of, you know, like, I, you know, mentally I was pretty agile, but physically, you know, like there was a lot of the way I processed trauma was it just went straight into my body. Mm. So I used to tuck myself into a doona and I used to just tell myself a story, you know, and either it was a superhero story or a magic story or, you know, so I used to, that was basically how I how I got to sleep at night. Well, it's like working at a muscle. Yeah, and it's that same kind of muscle that I sort of use to this day, you know, in in trying to create those stories. But what I was going to say is that even in working in those genres, like when we did Nowhere Boys, the first thing I did was get a whole bunch of research commissioned about the multiverse and uh, quantum physics and... Lorenzian uh, wormholes and, you know, like stuff like that. Because I thought of thought, well, if I'm going to take a high concept, it has to be, you know, you have to really examine it and and try to find the truth behind it. Absolutely. But I think there's a lot of respect to the kids that are going to watch that show in the sense that it's very relatable and they're real characters. They're real people. I mean, it seemed to me like you'd lived a lot of these lives. But as children, we'd love to have superpowers. Yeah, 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 exactly. We'd love to be exploring that. But I think for children, we love to think that we're important. And you yeah. tell stories about these kids in a very clever way because they're fully developed characters. You know, the irony is that the Chinese boy in Noah Boys was the same kid who played me in Home Song Stories. Do you have a lot of people you work with ringing you up saying, Tony, I want to be in another one of your stories? <laughs> then you started to develop a relationship shortly after these films with working more with television. And yeah. You did Bogan Pride with Rebel yeah, Wilson. Yes, that's right. What was it like? And did you have a sense when you were working with Rebel Wilson that she was going to go on to be what she is now? I always knew that Rebel was going to be a star. <laughs> Rebel 
had it all. She was so determined. She was such a hard worker. She was a really good writer. I mean, I well, I knew her when she was just still doing sketch comedy. Yeah. So, you know, like basically I was trying to help her go from sketch comedy into longer form narrative. And so, you know, that's – so I worked as a script editor and then we, you know, produced the show show together and she starred in it. And, and yeah, yeah, I you know, even back then you knew that she she had – all of the talent and the determination to do very well. And, you know, I'm not surprised she's done as well as she has, Mm. but she also knows how to navigate that world. Like, she was very determined, and Mm. and I think that that's... Well, you've got to be. Yeah, yeah. I I admire her for that. It can be a very dangerous place to navigate. So then you came across The Slap, which was... One of my favourite books of all time, and Christos Cholkis is just amazing. Yeah. How did you know that that was going to work better as a TV show rather than a film? Because I remember Christos before you did it. Yeah. He was passionate about making yeah. it a film. He's a cinephile, yeah. Well, basically, I sort of pitched to him that, you know, when I read it, I just thought, uh, if you turn it into a film, it's pretty much going to be about the court case. That's all it's going to be, yeah. you know, about someone hits someone else's kid, that person's so outraged, they take them to court, and then, you know, their friends split up over it. But, it, you know, it was going to be reduced because that's what films are. They're always reduced. The thing that's most interesting about the slap is actually not the slap itself. Mm. It's about everything else that happens around it, the repercussions, the way it sort of tears away the veil of civility that holds us all together. You know, uh, That has, you know been torn away pretty dramatically these days but yeah. you know it just it just shows you how starkly different people are in in underneath and the for me that was what was interesting about it so to to it to do it as a tv series felt like you could really honor the book i mean so that was my pitch and you know thankfully christos agreed agreed with it yeah. uh Brendan Cow, how did you get him involved? Um, he w- he wanted to write it, and wa- in the and Brent, Brendan's, you know, larger than life character. He's hilarious, yeah. and you know, and he wrote the Harry chapter it was great, you know, and and then he wrote the Richie ch- chapter, and I thought, you know, this is Brendan. It, it, the the, the big, it's the combination of the big machismo man and the um and the gay teenage boy and i thought that that sort of describes brendan <laughs> you know he's very he's very innocent in some ways and very alpha male in other ways and then whilst we were working on it i just thought oh you should play richie's dad but i mean there was also when i watched the slap on tv for the first time it it did have some very uh, had some things that reminded me of Love My Way. Some yeah. some real honesty about who we are in Australia, just yeah. in suburbia Australia. Like yeah. that retelling, I thought lifted from what was written in the book by Christos and came across on screen. I think from some of that writing. I mean, we all loved the book so much. You know, even though there were things that in the series that changed from the book. Whenever we were, were stuck dramatically, we are trying to work out what would happen. We always went back to the book and the answers were in the book. It was kind of like the Bible. It's weird. It was weird. Well, you do. I think that's what happens when you're trying to translate something is you're only looking to tell the truth of the book. Yeah. And if you go back to that truth, yeah. you then can find the narrative. It, yeah. It's a great, it was such a strong source, source of material. 
And then did you say to Christos at that time, are you riding Barracuda? You haven't given it to me? <laughs> I knew that he was riding Barracuda and I wanted to read it. Yeah. And as soon as I read it, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm a terrible reader. So, I always read things really late. Yeah. Don't you read only three books a year? Oh, shocking. I'm shocking. <laughs> I, I wish I was better. But. You know, soon, you know, I was late to read it because initially, you know, I heard that, you know, maybe it would be hard to translate. As soon as I read it, I knew exactly what I thought we should do with it. And I pitched it to him. I said, you know, Barracuda as a book was about a long, you know, a whole life. But for me, I just want to tell the story of four years in this guy's life. And I, you know, I pitched it to Christos. We had a great relationship because of the slap, you know, and because he's a mate. Mm. And he said, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Give it a go. <laughs> and then I went and pitched at the ABC and they loved the pitch and said, yeah, yeah you know, this is very brave of them because it was the year of the Olympics and they said, we want to do some a story that about someone that about not always winning. Mm-hmm. I mean, Barracuda is about someone coming to terms with failure, you know, and that's a big theme that we don't talk about very often not at all yeah and i and i thought that was why i wanted to make it and that was also why the abc wanted to get behind it as well i think sometimes those stories don't get told because for years we're sort of told oh they're too sad or they're too bleak and so we don't want to unearth that because people don't need to be reveling in sadness but for me that's what i'm i'm drawn to that in particular you know, I I, lo- I loved you know you know what, particularly the writers Belinda Chaco and Blake Ashford and the director Rob Connolly and producer Amanda Higgs. You know, like my collaborators on that project. I loved the the ultimate show that was made from it. I just thought it was, you know, like I say, I I think I'm a humanist. I, you know, like I love things that uh, can connect us as human beings. Yeah, that can actually sort of speak to people and, 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 you know, make people feel things. You know, they're, they're the things that I, I like watching and, and certainly the things I like making. How did Matchbox Pictures come about? Matchbox uh, came about when Michael and I had a comp- company called Big and Little Films. Yep. And it was doing pretty well, but uh, it was just the two of us. And back then, I just had this sense that we either had to get bigger or smaller. There was two of us, and we had two employees, and you know it was it was a tiny little unit. And we talked to a number of people about you know are you interested in joining forces? And eventually we joined forces with a very dear friend of ours, Penny Chapman, who gave me my first job out of film school. And she's a legend. She like she she was the head of drama at the ABC. She was head of television at the ABC. She's this incredible producer. And so we. We formed a company with her and we brought in a couple of other producers, really amazing producers, Helen Bowden, Helen Pankhurst. And the five of us decided, well, we'll just give it a go, see what happens. And we got a business consultant in. And then the rest is history. It took off. It just was so successful. And then a couple of years into it, NBC Universal approached us and wanted to invest in the company with the aim of eventually buying the company, which happened. And, you know, it was just... Tremendously successful venture, and you know, I was I was there for ten years. Was there a direct plan about the tapestry of what Matchbox was doing with storytelling? I mean, you've got the Real Housewives of Melbourne, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which is like a guilty pleasure. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's absolutely. watching people be people, yeah. good and bad, 
which I kind of liked, as I said, guilty pleasure. But then you also had Nowhere Boys. You had something for younger people. You had yeah. something for older people. I mean, Glitch for me, and I guess I understand death because I've lost people in my yeah. life, but I watched Glitch that first season yeah. thinking, oh, my God, imagine if these people come back from the dead and yeah. how would you be? Yeah. But it was a real tapestry of what Matchbox did. Was there? Were you coordinating that? A lot of the first content of Matchbox were my original ideas or Penny generated a lot of stuff as well. It was pretty organised chaos, I guess you would call it. Matchbox did a lot of work which was about representing people who don't have who don't get seen on screen you know like that became we were ahead of the diversity wave you know like we the early work that we did was all about representation that was part of the passion of the storytelling because i think that we felt that we were telling stories that weren't being seen you know everyone was working really hard you know like and then the the company became this magnet for talent, like all these amazing people started working in the company. And, you know, and then the company was also really great at developing people. So, you know, someone would come from the, get a job as, as the front of house. And then, you know, you know, a couple of years later, they're running their own shows or winning Emmys or, you know, like that. There, there, were, there was a real sort of trajectory for people in the company. But also a sense of family and respect. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that's what... If you if I know anyone that's ever had anything to do with Matchbox, that's what they always say. You yeah. know, there's a lot of respect for the different projects, you know. Yeah. Some projects might not be everyone's cup of tea, no, but... Exactly. You know, in family, you know, you go and sit there at Christmas dinner and sort of share your stories, and that's ultimately what you've been doing. Yeah. It's a very nurt- nurturing environment, you know, like I, th- I think that, you know, and we're really proud of that and um you know but I, I i left matchbox at the beginning of the year and sort of decided to well you've got try tap. something else yes it's called tap yes which i thought was a great name do you want to explain to everyone what tap is uh, tony is production there yeah. you go but tap is a much better acronym well i kind of like the mantra that you're having for this where you know you're wanting to go out and tell high level productions of scripted drama yeah which was representing diversity i'm working on a whole bunch of really interesting things with a whole bunch of really interesting people. so There's got to be a lot of stories that are going to be coming out of that. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be a couple of announcements in the next few months, which I think are going to be pretty exciting. Who were your idols growing up? Like, who were your inspiration? When you were growing up, who were the yeah. people that you thought... Because it's hard for us, if you're talking yeah. to a lot of queer people, there, when we were growing up, there really wasn't a lot of queer no, representation. No. So we don't have that to look up to. Who were your idols? I mean, the filmmakers I loved were American filmmakers. Mm. uh, You know, like from that indie period, I loved Mike Nichols, who did The Graduate. I loved Robert Altman. Mm. You know, all of those kind of insane, bold films. So I, I guess, you know, I guess in terms of gay filmmakers and writers, there weren't that many to sort of, you know lead the way one person who had a profound effect on my career was a playwright called nick enright but he wrote lorenzo's oil he got nominated for an oscar for lorenzo's oil he was very generous and he he showed me that you could actually be successful and not an asshole like you could be a good decent person and i always thought that's that's just the most important ambition to have, you know, like to be a decent person, you know, to work hard and to, you know, try to do your best in your work, but then to treat people well as well. That's the side 
of ambition you don't hear a lot about. Especially in our industry, there's this kind of myth that you have to be a little bit ruthless, you have to be a little bit cutthroat, and I don't believe that. Well, the interesting thing of this is that you will probably be who filmmakers look up to. So you're actually someone who's in the queer space that's doing something amazing, which they will look up to. And isn't it great that you value that? Because we may see another generation of people who don't go out there being arseholes. I hope so. Yeah, enjoy doing yeah, what they yeah. do. I mean, it's always weird when you you still carry the version of yourself you have when you're a kid, which is you know I'm just this guy's trying to trying to make a living. You know, like I'm trying to do okay, and I know that that's not true because I know I've had successes. But I think that you have to be wary of your own press. You have to be very careful of not being too entitled. Absolutely. But I think also you've been able to rope a lot of people into that who obviously value the same thing. Uh, Benjamin Law's been on the show and talked yeah. to him a lot about you. Yeah, and well, well, Ben is, you know, he's the future. <laughs> you know, you know, <laughs> he's oh, amazing. I just sit there reading all the things that he's done, much like yourself. Phenomenal. And you're like, Phenomenal. Oh, you're writing a... He, who's <laughs> writing a show for Channel 10 and working for the MTC, yeah. but also getting published in every newspaper? Yeah. I know, and I know. magazine. Yes, and, and doing a radio show and doing a TV show. And yeah, also yeah. being very humble about it and he, present. I, th- I think the closeness of his family, you know, you can see that, that that's where it comes from. Can you tell us what we can expect to see from The Family Law Season 3, which is, you know, imminent? Well, I'll just say it's the gayest season yet. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to find out how, ben, yeah, like yeah, how yeah, ben comes yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the coming out season. I, I also think about the fa- the thing I think about family law is I think it's it's about a family and they just happen to be Chinese. I mean, it's integral to it, but it's not what the show is about. The show is just about this dysfunctional family, this mother who's trying to find her identity, <laughs> trying to find her vagina. You know, like, you know, <laughs> and uh, she's going to talk about it. Yeah. And it's it's very relatable. You know, that's the thing. You know, it, weirdly enough, it could be on Channel 10, it could be on Channel 9, but... Fortunately for us, it's on SBS because they've let us make the show that we want to make. Uh, Can we talk about what's coming up next for you? Season three of Glitch is coming up. Season four of Nowhere Boys is coming up. December, is that right? December season four of Nowhere Boys. Season three of Glitch is next year sometime I don't think it's got a date yet and and then you know like I just have to tease because I can't say but there are a couple of things that are coming up which I think will be super exciting passion project that I've been working on for a long time and that looks like it's going to happen and then something international which looks like it's going to happen so so I'm kind of excited well I'm excited about you telling stories yeah outside of Australia as well as about Australians I think that's really powerful yeah, you yeah, know, it feels like the right thing to do right now. Have you got a message for the queer community that might be listening to this up right now? I feel like it is a time that's imp- where it's important to actually build bridges and and mend divisions. I think we're, you know, like we, you, you see it happening in America and I sort of watch it like the same way that you watch a car crash or Real Housewives, you know, you can't take your eyes off it. So, mm. so kind of appalling. But, I, and I, I feel like that shadow is coming to Australia. I think that the conservative politicians are learning lessons from the success of people like Trump. And I think that, you know, what, what's important for us as a community is to understand tolerance and to be able to reach out to people who don't speak the same language as us and to be able to communicate to other people. You know, like, I feel like, you know, for all of us at the moment, that 
that's a, an important thing to be doing. Well, I think with marriage equality and what happened with that, there was a real sense of community and yeah. getting together yeah. and supporting one another to getting yeah. something done. Yeah. Uh, which is about inclusion. Yeah, but it was also you know one of the tactics was to go out and talk to people, and I think that you know that that's kind of what we need to do. We need to kind of get off Twitter and you know and grinder. You know, and actually just talk to each other. Well, Tony, thank you so much for coming in and thank you joining so us on yeah. Word for Word. Yeah, I hope I didn't overshare. Word for Word is presented and produced by Ben Norris from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Word for Word is distributed nationally to over 70 radio stations across the community radio network. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.